Friday, February 17th, 2017, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Molly Quell, an American journalist and contributing editor at Dutch News. With me is Gordon Derrick, a British journalist and my colleague at Dutch News, and Paul Peters, a civil engineering student and Twitter personality. Uh, so how is everybody doing this week? Uh, doing fine. My new semester started this year, this week, yeah. so a lot of stress and a lot of... Um, Regret. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and Gordon, how have you been? Good. Yeah, no, fine. I've, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's finally warming up as well, which is uh, nice for uh, the, the bike ride down. I yeah, it was a beautiful day. Uh, yeah, yeah, lovely day. Was it yeah. two yes, days ago two or days something ago. like that? Yeah. yeah, it was really nice. I was inside all day. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, I successfully moved on Saturday, so all of my stuff is now in another house. Oh, in boxes. Did you? Good. Yeah. Yes, in boxes. Mostly, we've got a few things unpacked, so it's moving along. <laughs> did you unpack your dog already? Yes, I've unpacked my dog. It was he was the good. first, the second thing I unpacked after my KitchenAid. <laughs> Our top story this week is the report out from the CPB, the Central Plan Bureau, which is the government agency responsible for economic forecasting in the Netherlands. It uh, addresses the impact of party manifestos on the Dutch economy. Paul here has read the entirety of this 374-page document and is going to tell us more about it. I did. It was a... a was it a fascinating read? Mm-hmm. Yes, a nice bedtime story. The Central Plan Bureau, or the Netherlands Bureau for Economic Policy Analysis, released its traditional report in which they analyze and calculate the economic impact of the party's manifestos in the short term and long term. The CPB first calculates a base scenario which they compare to the party's policy proposals. The idea is that voters can make a better and informed judgment between the political parties and it forces the parties to really substantiate and think about their proposals. Surprisingly enough, all the outcomes resulted in economic growth and reduced government debt, despite wide differences in the party's proposals, contrasting with other years. The Bureau stresses that their calculations are based on the assumption that the party's manifesto will be fully implemented, though in the Dutch coalition culture this is a highly unlikely scenario. Not all parties decided to let the CPB analyze their manifestos. BVV's Geert Wilders stated, for example, that he doesn't believe in the Bureau's paper reality, and Marianne Timmer of the Animal Party said that it is impossible for their party's worldview to be translated into the Bureau's parameters. So, Paul, what does this mean in terms of uh, election outcomes? Because all of the analysis seemed pretty similar. So is there something here for the voters to kind of look at? Uh, it depends on what the voter thinks is more important. Uh, and, and based on that, they can you know, look at the CPB's report and decide for themselves which party is, uh, suits their worldview or their ideas better. It was kind of noticeable as well that all the parties managed to engineer it so that uh, they all managed to make the economy grow more and yet and with more jobs and yet uh, uh, a smaller budget deficit and uh, and fewer taxes. Uh, yeah, they did a pretty good job uh, in that. <laughs> so the question is, uh, are they now uh, are the parties you know uh, uh, writing their manifestos uh, in such a way that it eventually will result in economic growth or is it really their ideas that you know, result in that? Yeah, so then the question is what's the value of this to this exercise to the voter? Uh, well, the value is that you will be bombarded by every newspaper <laughs> and every news show with, uh, with tables and with uh, overviews. Um, yeah, but I think uh, ultimately it's a good thing because it really forces the party to you know, think about their proposals and think about the economic impact of their proposals. 
In other election news, five of the major party manifestos contain plans that go directly against the Dutch rule of law, according to a report by lawyers' association NOVA, which was released this week. The manifestos of PVV, VVD, CDA, SGP and VNL all contain at least one plan that interferes with constitutional safeguards, according to the society, in areas such as terrorism, refugees, immigration and religious freedom. The society commented, quote, When one is willing to violate democratic values and civil rights while claiming to protect them, one is himself a threat to these values and rights. The report also found that nearly all parties have plans that strengthen the rule of law, with the exception of the PVV and VNL. The Christen Uni, PVDA and D66 are the best parties on the list. The report also put out a useful visual representation, which we'll include in the liner notes. Yeah, there, there was a little Twitter storm about this because uh, the uh, chair of uh, of the uh, Nova Association uh, appeared to be married to the number seven of the GroenLinks party. Yeah. So, yeah, and how did GroenLinks do in the survey? They they were doing actually pretty pretty well. Surprised. So in yet more election news. Broadcaster RTL cancelled the first television debate, which was scheduled for this past Sunday, after Geert Wilders of the PVV and Prime Minister Mark Rutte of the VVD announced that they would not participate. The debate initially included the leaders of the top four parties in the polls, but RTL decided to invite a fifth party leader when the polls were inconclusive because numbers three, four, and five, GroenLinks, uh, CDA, and the Deisessestech, were too close to call. Following this, Rutte and Wilders decided not to come, claiming that RTL violated the terms and conditions of the debate, after which RTL canceled the debate entirely. Two days later, however, RTL announced plans to revive the debate, but without the leaders of the two largest parties in the polls. Thus participating will be GroenLinks, the CDA, Deisessestech, and the SP in this so-called Prime Minister's debate, which will be held on February 26th. So we end up with a Prime Minister's debate that doesn't have the Prime Minister. Yes, that or is. Or his closest challenger. Yes, Yes, and strictly correct. speaking, we're not electing the Prime Minister, so the name doesn't make sense at all. And in yet more election news... Three opinion polls in recent days have recorded a sharp fall in support for Geert Wilders' party. Ein van Dijk put the PVV on 26 seats, five fewer than in its last poll two weeks ago, while Kantar Public registered an eight-seat drop to 27. Both still gave the PVV a narrow lead over Mark Rutte's Liberal Party, but a third poll by INO Research found that the Liberals had overtaken the PVV with 24 seats to 20. Though the gap is tightening, Rutte's party doesn't appear to be profiting from the decline in support for Wilders, most of the gains have been made by the parties contesting third place, that's the CDA, Deisessensester and GroenLinks, as well as the Animal Rights Party, PVVD. To ask a clarifying question, in my experience every year here that this happens, that the PVV polls really high prior to the election and then like leading up to the election, their poll numbers start to drop a bit. Yeah, there's definitely a trend where the PVV's support seems to fall away as election day gets nearer. I think what's interesting this time is it's happening sooner. You usually see this happening in maybe the week, two weeks, three weeks before the election when the debates get going. But we've still got four weeks to go, and, and these are big drops as well. So it's surprising. Possibly, I think part of it is because Wilder's got a big boost in support after his trial, um, when a lot of people uh, felt that he'd been put on trial for free speech, and that shouldn't have happened. And most of the support he gained then, back in November, has now pretty much gone. And I think the question is, is he going to fall any further, or is he hit bottom now? So in non-election news, the Tweede Kamer unanimously accepted a motion that calls for the reduction of natural gas extraction in Groningen, the decade-long extraction of Europe's largest natural gas field under the Groningen village of Slochteren, has been causing earthquakes for years. These earthquakes have recently become more frequent and intense, resulting in damage to many houses and buildings, often beyond repair. The majority of households in the Netherlands are highly dependent on the Groningen gas, 
using it in central heating and cooking, which is why the Dutch government has been reluctant to reduce the gas extraction. The economic minister Henk Kamp began a debate on Thursday by stating that the government has underestimated the danger to the people of Groningen. Parliament also wishes that NAM, the company that, that extracts the gas, will no longer be involved in the claim settlements. Paul, I have a question about that. So. Does that mean that they're not going to be paying out claim settlements anymore? Uh, no, they will be paying it out, but they are not uh, involved in the decision whether or not they will be paid out. So the system as it is right now is that the company that extracts the gas is also the arbitrator of who gets paid out for damages from the gas extraction. Um, the company, NAM, the, com the extracting company is owned by Shell and Shell's uh, 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 preferred consultancy agency is involved in the settlement. So it's a really weird uh, uh, construction. Uh, we all know uh, Arjen Lubach, of course, after his viral uh, Make the Netherlands Second uh, video. And he also did a piece about uh, an item about uh, the Groningen gas situation and we will include a link to this uh, YouTube uh, video that can help to explain uh, a bit what's going on. In sport, two Dutch clubs are in action as the Europa League resumed this week. Ajax came away from Poland with a nil-nil draw against Legia Warsaw, but they should have had more. The referee failed to spot the shot by Davy Klaas and crossed the goal line before the Polish goalkeeper stopped it. AZ gave themselves a glimmer of hope by converting a second-half penalty, but they still went down 3-1 at home to Lyon and will now have a mountain to climb when they travel to France next week. And they won't be skiing down it. <laughs> so another classic goal-line technology failure. Indeed. Or, um, I'm only guessing they didn't have goal-line technology in that game because... Uh, when you see the photos, the ball was clearly over the line. Oh, yeah, so a uh, classic lack of goal line technology. <laughs> a classic situation where goal line technology should have been introduced. Yes. You, you don't really need technology to determine that goal, you just need eyes. You exactly, so you need a referee who can actually see where the ball is. Yes. So in other travel-related news, six months ago, Pepper, a cat from Tilburg, went missing and was finally found on Tuesday in a forest near Vienna, Austria. Pepper, who is clearly injured and not doing well after her journey, was found by a hunter who brought her to a local veterinarian, where it was revealed that she was tagged with a microchip, thus could they could contact her owner, Franka Schrappendonk. The vet let her know that uh, he will not be charging her for Pepper's treatment, and a number of volunteers have offered to drive the cat the 950-kilometer ride back home. Yeah, she didn't have the driver's license herself, so no, no, it's, it's yeah, kind yeah, of a problem. Yeah. Yeah. It appears from the story that she uh, must have hitched a ride probably on a truck somewhere. So, Jumped so she into a, a truck and then got then then drove off to, to Austria, the poor cat. So she was a stowaway. She, she was a stowaway, yes. <laughs> a refugee, Indeed. if you will. <laughs> if they closed the borders, then she would have been stopped in Tilburg. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Amsterdam has become the first place in the Netherlands to outlaw street harassment. The city council voted for the measure on Wednesday... It means people caught using intimidating language or gestures in public could be given an on-the-spot fine of up to 4,100 euros. Fefe Day councillor Dylan Jesselgers, who led the campaign, said the next step was to train enforcement officers to deal with the problem. A survey last year found that 8 out of 10 women between the ages of 18 and 34 had experienced street harassment in the last 12 months. A follow-up question. How do they plan on catching this? This being the issue, isn't it? Is it actually enforceable? Is it, I think the, the idea is they'll have, uh, it'll be enforced by uh, street wardens. But, uh, but the point of it is, at the moment, if you're harassed in the street, you have to file a report with the police, which is obviously a more difficult procedure. Whereas under this plan, uh, if, if you were caught you know, in, in the act, as it were, you could be given a ticket straight away. So the only people who are going to be caught doing street harassment are the ones who are dumb enough to do it in front of a Basically, police officer. Yeah. Okay. The whistle police. <laughs> right. This leads well into our discussion this week, which is about equality, which we will get to after this word from our sponsors.
Don't know the difference between the PVDA and the PVV? With Dutch national elections rapidly approaching, Dutch news has all the election coverage you need. Our reporting is entirely in English and we publish daily updates about the polls, debates and campaigns ahead of the March 15th election. Every week we feature a long-form article about a topic which features prominently in this election. On the evening of the election, we'll host a live blog on our site discussing the results as they come in. You can find all of the Dutch news and election coverage at dutchnews.nl slash election-2017. There are only 59 women in the 150-seat parliament, not nearly representative of the 50% of the population that women make up in the Netherlands. And given how poorly the PVDA is doing in the polls, this number is likely to fall, as they have 19 female members alone. This is dramatically higher than the rest of Europe, which, other than Switzerland, has 50% full-time employment amongst women. Women also work significantly fewer hours than men, 26 on average compared to the 38 for men. So this situation where women are working less, I think, leads well into the fact that there are fewer uh, female politicians, which sort of becomes a cyclical thing where women don't see themselves being represented in politics and thus don't think of themselves as politicians and thus don't like sort of pr push themselves to be uh, yeah, represented. And yeah, and perhaps it explains why there are fewer female candidates for top jobs in politics and certainly when you look at the lineup of political leaders just at the moment um, it, it, it's all men, it's, it's all white men as well but it's, particularly it's all men um, and which is not maybe what you'd expect uh, given that there are 12 parties in Parliament at the moment, only one's got a female leader, and that's the Animal Party, which has only got two MPs. Yeah, it's striking, and these photos are really... Uh, yeah, especially standard. because they all seem to wear very similar coloured suits. Yeah. They really seem sort of like interchangeable, except for Wilders with his crazy hair. Right? Yeah. Like, that's about it. Yeah, it's interesting because um, in countries that have explicit quotas for female representation, they actually have much higher representation in Parliament. So places like Afghanistan and uh, several countries in... Uh, in uh, Africa have explicit uh, requirements for female representation and thus uh, 30 or 40 or 50 percent of elected officials are, are women, which is kind of, I think, uh, an interesting thing. Oh, didn't know that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's also striking that, uh, uh, you know, every party has their open elections for the party leadership. And, for example, PvdA had their um, elections a few months ago and there was literally no woman that, uh, uh, you know, was electable to become the party leader. But uh, uh, you can just, you know, as, uh, apply for that, right? You can just walk in the uh, headquarters of the party and you say, I want to be uh, uh, electable for the leadership. So why aren't any women doing that? I don't know. I think it's an interesting question. I mean, it, I, I, I feel like, I mean, having lived in a bunch of different countries, that in the Netherlands there's really this sort of push for women to not work full-time because they're expected to sort of be home kind of taking care of the kids and that there's like a real push to pick the kids up from school and that there's this school schedule that requires sort of children come home for like a, a meal during the day which means that there has to be a parent at home to like prepare this meal and that 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 burden sort of falls disproportionately on women and thus this like kind of leads to this thing where women are sort of underrepresented both in representation but also in high-level positions in business. I mean, there's been a number of reports that sort of show that the Netherlands doesn't do particularly well with, say, female CEOs of companies. Yeah, you do definitely notice that the domestic roles are still very very gendered. When, when you know, I have children, and when you go to the school playground, it's almost all mothers picking up children in the daytime. And it's still quite normal for children to come home at lunchtime um, at least 
three days a week, and it's usually the mother who's expected to to be at home to, to to look after them. And obviously, children are off on Wednesday afternoons as well. And it tends to be the woman who drops down to part-time hours to cope with that. And if you're a father standing in the playground, you kind of stand out, and um, and, and you'll even be asked by the other other parents, you know, where's where's the mum or where's the partner. I think what's interesting as well is that uh, even when when women don't have children or they're in the stage of their career before they have children or they're just not going to have children, they still work fewer hours and they're still expected or there's still there's still a kind of cultural expectation that that, um, that they're going to work shorter hours or fewer days in the week. Yeah, I mean, I certainly have experienced this. I mean, as a, as a woman who is of childbearing age but has no plans to have children, have sort of seen, have had people make comments to me sort of along the lines of, uh, you know, it, they find it strange that I work full time, that I work, you know, a lot of hours during the week, that I'm a bit of a workaholic, and that um, people don't seem to understand why I don't work four days a week or, or three days a week because that's perfectly, you know, sort of financially feasible. Um, so I think that that's kind of interesting. But do you even see it? Um, it's, so there's been lots of discussions, I think, university level about uh, how to uh, deal, so particularly like at places like TU Delft and TU Eindhoven, where you have a disproportionately fewer number of female faculty members and how, how those things sort of sort of come about and things that you can do to kind of improve those numbers. Um, but mm. it doesn't seem to have drastically changed too much in, say, the last five years or so. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that maybe there was an assumption over the last couple of generations that... Um, uh, if you educated girls to the same standard of boys and put more women into the university system, the problem would kind of right itself and the women would enter the jobs market and then climb the career ladder in the same way. That hasn't really happened. So you still find there's still a disparity in terms of women uh, not getting to top positions and being paid less sometimes to do the same job or going into uh, into jobs that are where there are more part-time positions and, uh, and, and the pay is less. So maybe we've got to the point where we have to think maybe we need to do something at the job market level to, uh, to encourage more women to participate. Right now there are more female students in the universities than there are males, so perhaps that will you know, result in better statistics uh, regarding uh, full-time uh, women. Although I wonder what the breakdown is in terms of uh, uh, career pursuits, right? That like one of the reasons that it makes oftentimes more sense for a woman to stay home is because she's earning less money. So you have a, a woman who has a degree in communications and has a perfectly valid career that, you know, but of course she makes less money, 10 or 20,000 euros a year less than her partner who has a, a degree in computer science or something like this. So when you sort of sit down to do the numbers and you're like, well, we have to put this kid in, you know, to daycare and whatever and that sort of thing, that it just financially makes a lot more sense. I mean, this is a thing and there was a cut in the the crush subsidy a few years ago, I think, and that I, I remember sort of hearing a lot of resonance of, of, of women, f female friends of mine going, yeah, well, you know, now we're basically paying more in daycare than I am actually earning. So it really doesn't make any, mm. any sense for me to, to, to go, go into the workforce. Um, yeah, so there's definitely something to do for the government to, uh, to change that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. When you're a couple and you have children and you look at the, the numbers and the thing you're almost automatically going to do is uh, is try and minimise the, the impact when one, one of you has to stop work or cut back on your hours. And you know, if, if you have a situation where women are earning less, that is going to be the woman. So it kind of compounds the problem, becomes a sort of cyclical problem. Yeah. Then, 
Yeah, and then of course when women are only working three days a week, then you don't become the CEO, right? No, then because like, of course that takes a lot of time to you know become the CEO, and also when when you are a company and you're hiring a new CEO or a high level position, uh, and there was a female that's applying, and she, and you know, seventy five percent of all women work work part time and they want to work part time. Why would you hire a, a woman for for that position if she's only going to you know twenty five percent of the women are going to work full time? Right. Right. Yeah. In I mean, all fairness. It, yeah. And it create yeah, it just creates this sort of situation where employers are maybe a bit skeptical about hiring women. I mean, and that I think exists in all countries, right? That like there's laws in many countries about asking women if they plan to have children in the next five years. Like you're not, this is illegal in the US. Like you're not allowed to ask a woman this question for exactly this reason, because you shouldn't be able to discriminate against, you know, someone who is planning to have children. Um, but like, of course, this is still a thing that, 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 that happens in lots of places where you're sort of, you know, the expectation is is that if you're a woman sort of in your 30s that you're probably planning on having kids. And I think that, like, if you are a woman like me and you sit in job interviews, that, like, you do wonder whether or not you're not going to get this position because, you know, they have a qualified male candidate who they know statistically is much more likely to work five days a week than somebody like me who's much more likely to say, well, I now need four or five months of maternity leave. And in Netherlands as well, you have the situation where working hours in general are less than in most other countries and uh, people work fewer hours but they're more productive productivity is higher and and yet you still have this inequality between the genders and so it's, it's a country there's not an awful lot of wasted effort you know that, that um, uh, work is generally quite efficiently organized and yet you have this structural imbalance where you invest just as much in the education of uh, women as men and yet um, systematically they're earning less and contributing less to the economy so you wonder if you almost need to come at the question from a different angle rather than say why aren't women why aren't more women getting into work. You ask, why aren't we structuring society so that, um, so that women and men are both able to capitalize on, on, on their education in the same way? Yeah, I mean, I would think like it sort of seems like an easy way, it, it kind of a low-hanging fruit here, right, would be to adjust the school schedule so that it actually matches with people's work schedules, which, to be honest, is how it is in like most other countries. I mean, I, this, I'm not sure how specifically it is in every country in the EU, but every place I've ever lived, right, the kids go to school essentially for like 40 hours-ish a week, right, that they're there from sort of eight to four, and this kind of covers the the parents' work schedule, and that it's not uncommon to sort of have direct after-school activities where the kids then are there until, you know, I don't know, doing some sort of sport or something like this, so that, 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 that you know, you, you are, the children are out of the house for the same amount of time the parents are, unlike in this country where, you know, you have these frequent half days and stuff like that, that makes it a lot more difficult, I think, for, for parents to be able to work full time. Yeah, and you end up with a better work-life balance for, for both partners, because right. the man's spending less time in the office and more time with his uh, family, and, and, there's, and the woman gets a chance to, um, uh, to go out and um, develop her career and has less of the burden of, uh, of the domestic tasks. And, do, 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 and you still have the situation where in the last 10, 15 years, even, we've seen the rise of uh, what's called the papadach, you know, the, the dad's <laughs> day with the kids. But the papadach is still a thing where when the dad has a kids, it's still seen as he's kind of looking after the children. He's not just being a parent. Babysitting almost. almost babysitting, right? yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and uh, on a papa duck, you tend to, you know, take your children out somewhere. You take them out to the museum or you, you go on an outing. And when the mum's at home with the kids, she's, you know, she's doing the washing, she's doing the cleaning, she's doing all the sort of, you know, traditional women's roles. And so it's still a sort of sense of, you know, the dad is kind of the, 
the, the fun parent and the woman's the one who actually does the, the domestic work. So yeah, that, that's another thing that maybe uh, need, needs to change. Is there any discussion? I, I've seen very little discussion in the upcoming elections about addressing any of these issues. I mean, I don't think it's a, been a thing that I've seen particularly in any of the party platforms or anything like that. Paul, have you seen anything about this? Mm, no, not really, actually. No. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that it's like not really a thing that's being that so widely discussed. I mean, we could have lots of discussions about refugees, which is probably a much tinier fraction of the population mm -hmm. than, uh, than, than women. But <laughs> yeah, indeed. And when you went back to uh, the political arena, you, you, you tend to see that you know, where, where women have been um, uh, given the opportunity and given the jobs, you know, they, 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 they've done a good job. If you look at the last Ritter cabinet, you know, one, I think there's been six female ministers and 18 male ministers. Of the, of the 18 male ministers, six have left early, um, and one was Franz Timmermans, who left to be European Commissioner, but the others have also resigned for various, um, you know, in, in, in not very happy circumstances. And know. how many of those had to do with the Bonnages affair? Three of them were to do with the Bonnages affair. And only one of the six female ministers resigned, and that was Vilma Mansfeld over the Farrah trains, which was kind of a problem that she was handed at the start of the job. Yes. So, so you know, when women are given the opportunity, um, they, they, they perform just as well, and perhaps you might say even say um, better than men in the same position. Yeah, well, perhaps <laughs> we'll see uh, see in the next election a few more a few more women on the ballot. I certainly uh, hope so. That is all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. For Gordon Derrick and Paul Peters, I'm Molly Quell, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>